Well, open your Bibles this morning to Psalm 90. Psalm 90. This is a prayer of Moses, the Bible tells us. We've been looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, and we have seen that it is its content is a commentary on the on the curse, a commentary on Genesis three, in order to to give us wisdom of how to live in that that kind of of world. Life in a in a fallen world, if you leave God out of it, is is meaningless. It's full of frustration, and it feels futile. And yet God, being rich in mercy, has not left us without wisdom, and and that wisdom can lead us to, to joy as we navigate the fall. But we need to know those tools, we need to know that wisdom, and we need to put it into practice, which is why Solomon has written the book of Ecclesiastes for us. We've also found that, that the, the conclusion about life that Ecclesiastes brings... Uh, it, it, it's not unique. Lest we think that Solomon was just having a bad day or that he was disillusioned by his many foreign wives, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 shows us that that's not true. Romans chapter 8 confirms that creation has been subjected to vanity and we, we, we feel that. Even creation groans and we long for the day when when it, will be, when it will be released, when that curse is removed. And Paul wrote that a thousand some years after Solomon. Well, here in Psalm 90 is 500 years or so before Solomon. Before Ecclesiastes was ever written, Moses calls us to wisdom in the curse as well. Look, if you would, at verse 2 of Psalm 90. Before the mountains were born, you gave birth to the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are, you are God. You turn man back into the dust or into dust and say, return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the, in the night. It sounds a lot like Ecclesiastes 3, doesn't it? There's a, Sovereign God who holds time in His grip and, and who has placed men, subjected men to a curse because of their sin. And then, it, and then it ends with them returning to the dust. They're going to go back to the dust. You come from the dust, you, you work in the dust, and then you go back to the, to the dust. And, and what does Moses say life is like under this curse? He establishes the curse in verses 2 and 3. Look at verse 10. Verse 10. He says, "...for the days of our life," that's days under the sun... They contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for it soon is gone and we, we fly away. What does Moses say life is like 500 years before Solomon ever comes along? He says it's short, 70 to 80 years. It's, it's gone quickly. It's like a, it's like a, a breath. It flies away. And while we're here, it's full of labor and and sorrow. And realizing that, what does Moses ask for? Look, if you would, at verse, verse 12. So teach us to number our days. Why? That we may present to you a heart of wisdom. He asked for wisdom 
And he also asked for knowledge and joy, just like Solomon. Look, if you would, at verses 14 and 15. Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness. Satisfy us under this curse in this world in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all of our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us in the years we have seen evil. Now, you see, 500 years before, you see Solomon, and you see a 1,000 years or so afterwards, you, you might think that the Bible has a single author, wouldn't you? Well, indeed, it does. And Moses says there is a curse, and, and we need to look at it full in the face so, so we can gain a heart of wisdom. And, and once we do that, then we can find satisfaction and joy in God alone. And that's exactly what Solomon is teaching us in this new section of Ecclesiastes chapter 3 through 5. Now, Solomon has laid out his plan to, to teach us to number our days, as, as, as Moses says. Teach us to number our days under the curse, and then he provides a detailed record of his pursuit that, that does nothing but prove that no matter where you turn, you find the curse. Life is empty without God. And after searching for meaning... Everywhere other than God, you remember it was the, the gospel of me, my pursuits, my pleasure, my labors. Solomon ends his quest, and then he begins to provide us some wisdom. He explains, at the end of chapter 2, why life on earth feels like, like vanity. He says, mankind cannot find satisfaction in this world because God has removed our ability to find it without Him. That's part of the curse. Labor is part of the curse. Labor in the sense that, that you can't accomplish anything. I mean, work was in the garden. Work is, is not, it's not a four-letter word, as they say. Work was given by God. It's a gift of God. So what, it, what, what's part of the curse? There's futility in the work. You work and you work and you work and you can't, you can't get ahead. And you can't find satisfaction in work or anything else because as part of the curse, God has removed our ability to find satisfaction anywhere. And then Solomon in chapter 3 also tells us that God has created us with eternity in our hearts. So that gives us a longing for, for something more than, than just here. This explains why we can't, we can't find satisfaction anywhere else. We're on a perpetual search for fulfillment that we can't find in a world that, that fails to satisfy, and we have a sense of, of something permanent, but we live in a world that's incomplete and passing away. And that's a recipe for futility and frustration. And in Jesus Christ, you find the answer to both of those things. You find full and complete satisfaction, and you find eternal life. And so Solomon now begins to give us the tools to live in that kind of world. And while unbelievers search and search, they, they never find anything. God has granted His followers tools to live wisely under the curse and even enjoy God's gifts. And we're starting to learn those, those tools. And last week, we saw the first and foremost, the most vital tool that you and I need to live in a fallen world, and that's God's sovereignty. If you mess that up, your life is going to be a mess. You're going to be frustrated, you're going to feel lots of vanity. If you understand it, you may, not, you may not have all the answers this side of heaven, but you'll have a place to rest 
God's grip of time, Solomon says, has arranged everything in life and He will make it beautiful. God will make it beautiful in His time, even in a cursed world. And that's the most essential tool we need to operate in a broken place. Solomon last week taught us that God is the one place that you can find stability while your feet move up and down in the shifting sands of the, of the curse. And you might not understand why He allows something, but knowing He does allows you to rest in the areas that we see the curse so clearly. So Solomon teaches us to stop asking why and start asking how. How can I submit to you? And that's the goal of the book, the wisdom book, is to bring us to acknowledge the fall, it's impossible to escape, and then provide wisdom to live under it. Well, today, Solomon's going to give us some additional tools to deal with some specific parts of the, of the curse. So, you can turn over to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to be in the verses that Matt read for us this morning, beginning in verse 16 through 22. As I said, chapter 3 begins a new section, and you really should think of verses 1 through 15, what we covered last week, like the big picture. The big picture answer to how to live wisely under the curse. It's wisdom in the macro. God's sovereignty covers everything that Solomon will talk about. It's, it's like the, the current or the electricity that's going to power the tools that, that he's going to give us in the verses we look at today and through the rest of chapter 4 and chapter 5. God's sovereignty is like the ratchet, and, and the other tools that I'm getting ready to give you, they're like the sockets that you need to attach to that ratchet in order to, in order to use to turn the rusty bolts that, that you find in the, in the curse. And so now he's going to open the toolbox and he's going to point out specific sockets that we need when we face particular frustrations. And the next tool that Solomon pulls out of the toolbox is to be applied to injustice... And death. <laughs> Those are two pretty frustrating areas of the curse, aren't they? Injustice and death. He's going to go over seven more. He's going to give us tools to deal with oppression, to deal with insignificant work, to deal with loneliness, uh, um, the desire for popularity, the misuse of worship, political corruption, financial woes. But he starts here with two major vexations that are that are right in our face on a regular basis because of Genesis 3. And the outline is pretty simple. Two tools God gives us to reduce the frustration of injustice and, and death. And the first tool that He gives us in verse 16 through, through 18 is we can trust in the Lord's tribunal. And the second tool that He gives us is we can hope in heaven's tabulation. Trust in the Lord's tribunal and hope in heaven's tabulation. Let's look at the first one. Give you would at verse 16. Watch how Solomon transitions to a new topic here. Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. So here, after Solomon looks up at a, at a sovereign God and who promises to make all things beautiful in, it, in its time, he, he then looks around at life and, and he says, 
Something's not adding up here. <laughs> he looks around everywhere, and, and what he sees is, is injustice. He's been singing the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, in verses 1 through 15, and the things of earth grew strangely dim for Solomon, and then when the chorus stopped, he turned his eyes back to this, the world that he lived in, and what he saw there was unrighteousness and, and injustice. Walt Kaiser said he saw unrighteousness in the halls of justice. And he wonders, how does that sync with, with God's good and beautiful plan? I'm sure you've, you've had that experience, haven't you? You come to church and you, you hear about Jesus and you, you, you sing a song, you, you, you hear a sermon and you leave full of hope and, and on the way to the car, you, you pull out your, your cell phone and you, you look at the headlines and they remind you of the world that, that, you, that you live in. Donald Trump's eating babies now or something like that. I don't know, he's just this horrible, wicked guy. That's all you see on the news. Or you go to the Lord in prayer and it's heavenly. And all of your problems melt away. And then you open your eyes and you see the prescription bottle for your cancer drugs sitting there on the, on the counter. Solomon looks around and he sees one of the most frustrating things about the curse after he, he, he has his eyes on the Lord. He sees where justice and righteousness are supposed to be, there's, there's wickedness. Is there anything that's much more frustrating than that? We go where we're supposed to find justice and we find just the, just the opposite. Lady Justice is supposed to be blind, but Sometimes in a fallen world she peaks. And she does that for the person who's important. Or she, she turns a, a blind eye in the wrong direction because you're not that important at all. Someone did something horrific to you and you finally tell some, somebody and nothing happens to them or they, they, they get probation when they should have gotten life. Or what about we, what we see all the time? It's, it's all over the, all over the internet. People accuse others of doing horrendous things that without any proof or it comes out later that they didn't do. But that, that's, that's after the fact the social media mob ruins their lives and, and they lose their job or, or whatever, it, whatever it might be. It's injustice. Have you ever been subjected to injustice? Falsely accused, wrongly convicted, victimized by someone and they haven't paid the price? Solomon's talking to you this morning. The courts are supposed to be the place where innocent should be declared innocent and the guilty declared guilty. It's where someone righteous goes to be proven so in a, in a world where everything can't be seen, everything can't be known. But instead, you go there expecting justice, you find injustice. In fact, Paul tells us that God's established the authorities because of the fall to help us manage everything. Look at Romans 13, 1 through 3. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. And what are these authorities supposed to do, Paul? Well, look at verse 4. For it is a minister of God for you or to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, also an avenger who brings wrath on one who practices evil. That, that's the right order. 
the good are declared to be good and, and they're protected and, and the evil are, are, are avenged. The wrath of God's avenged upon their, their head. The system of human authority is supposed to encourage good and punish evil. It's one of God's instruments to help us deal with the fall. The law or the courts won't change a single heart. But because of our hearts, God established the systems of justice to help us. We don't need Romans 13 if there is no fall, right? I mean, the government doesn't need to bear a sword if there's, if there's no sin in the heart of individuals to, to do wrong. But there is sin in hearts. And so the, the government does need the sword, including the death penalty. The governmental system of justice is God's gracious dispensation to help us live in a cursed world. And so when sin happens there, it's grievous. It, it's perplexing. So Solomon says, because of that same curse, those systems can deliver just the opposite of what God established them to to bring. The very tool that God has provided to deal with corruption can be corrupted itself. So if you put all of your hope in the government or all your hope in the court system or whoever or whatever, you're going to be sorely disappointed in a Genesis 3 world. And then it doesn't bring relief and it compounds misery. Solomon says that can take the heart out of you. It makes you feel like the world's upside down, like it's futile to try, to leave you disheartened, to leave you helpless. But then Solomon looks up again. And he reminds himself of something, which is the tool that we need. Look, if you would, at verse 17. I said to myself, after he looks around and sees that, he says, I said to myself... God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time, for every matter, and for every deed is there. You you, you hear the connection back to the first 15 verses? Solomon says the specific tool that you and I uh, need to deal with injustice is trust in God's tribunal. Solomon reminds himself of a greater court system when he is disappointed with the ones that are here. And in that one, only righteousness reigns. Human courts can dispense injustice, but God's court dispenses only only justice. You see, Solomon's just got done saying in verses 2 through 8 that God has established a time for everything, and now in verse 17, he applies that. He defines the time that God has established for justice, and it's not here, it's there. That's the time. So if you look for it here, you're probably going to be disappointed. Sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. Verse 17 is an application of verse 2, which says there's a time to die. There's a time for every matter under heaven, including judgment. And that happens at death, after death, not before. What's the verse that you know in the Bible? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Who will repay? I will repay. That's what Acts 17 says, right? Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God doesn't bring immediate judgment. He passes over it. But God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Why? Because He has fixed the day in which He'll judge the world in righteousness. And who's actually going to be sitting on the throne? Jesus Christ, through a man whom He has appointed, 
having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the, from the dead. Now, I can promise you that's a judge you're not going to get away with, with anything with him. And God's appointed that day. That's Paul's warning. What's coming to the unjust? The reason to repent is going to happen. And so when you face injustice, you need to remind yourself of Acts 17. You need to remind yourself of verse 17 of chapter 3. When you face injustice, you should do what you can to stop it. But if it comes, the relief will come knowing that God's going to use a perfect set of scales in the end. One day, no one is getting away with anything. No false accusation can stand before the courts of heaven with an all-knowing God. And while the world is unjust, Solomon says you can trust in the justice that God will bring. And knowing that helps you deal with injustice, doesn't it? Isn't it comforting to know that everything that is right will be confirmed one day and everything that is wrong will be dealt with? Isn't that comforting? Even the unjust judges will face accountability because the Lord is not only the King of kings, He's the judge of judges, isn't He? (laughs) And for an unbeliever, injustice drives them mad. It it leaves them hopeless. It dashes them on the rocks. Is there anywhere that, that I can turn for right and for wrong? But Solomon says the answer for us of handling that injustice in the world is is to remember God will judge the righteous and the and the wicked. Now you say that helps. It really does. I can find comfort in that. But I find one of those why questions from last week rising. Remember those why questions? Why do I have to wait so long for it? Why can't justice come come now? This 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 hurts. It's not, it's, not, it's not right. When you hear about abuse, you know God condemns it and you know He'll judge it, but, and you know it happens because of the fall, but, but then you wonder, why let it continue? Well, just like He always does, Solomon anticipates our question and He gives us the answer. Look, if you would, at verse 18. I said to myself concerning the sons of men, that's important, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but but beasts. We all take comfort in God's perfect justice, but while we wait, our hearts ask why the delay. You've asked that, haven't you? I know God is good, I know He'll judge, but, but why postpone it? Why is God taking so long and allowing this evil to keep happening? Why allow injustice to remain? Why wait to, to judge? And Solomon answers our question. Notice he says, he's talking to himself again. I said to myself, you're not crazy when you do that. You're actually biblical if you tell yourself the truth. And what is he talking to himself about? Literally, the sons of Adam, the sons of men. That's a reference to the fall. People that are fallen. And what about fallen people? They need to learn something. And then he tells us what they need to learn. God is delaying so that they can see something about themselves and the Lord. Why is there a delay? Well, Solomon gives us three reasons. The first one, he says, is the delay is so we can learn the truth about our own condition. Solomon says here, 
in verse 18, I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. They're like animals. Now, notice Solomon is not saying man is an animal. But he says people act like them, don't they? And God is delaying His judgment. His delay allows us to see how sinful that we really are, how broken and messed up we really are. And before you will ever call out for a Savior or find hope only in God, your hope in this world has to be dashed. And Solomon says God uses injustice in the world to expose how sinful human beings are, and we're very slow to accept that. And as the world continues... Is it getting better or worse? It's getting worse, isn't it? I mean, try as we might to improve our conditions, to to educate people to be more moral, to to fix things, to get better. We we do nothing but prove that we're we're like animals, we're like beasts. We are more advanced than ever before, but we use we just use our innovation to to get into more sin. And when you're told you're nothing more than an advanced animal, there's no reason to restrain it anyway. You wonder why, where all the morals have gone and why kids act the way that they do. It's because they're told all day long that they're nothing more than, than animals, so they, so they act like it. Darwin didn't invent his theory. It's right here in the Bible, 3,000 years before he, ever, before he ever wrote about it. But Ecclesiastes says it has a different purpose. It's to teach us Darwin's theory's fault brings beastly ethics. And the injustice we see and the fact that it goes on and on is to prove to us that we are not good people and we cannot solve our own problems. We don't act like God's image bearers when we oppress others or whenever we are unjust. And Solomon's answer is similar to the one that that Jesus gives in Luke 13. You say, well, I wish it was a little clearer. It'll be clear in a minute. Solomon's answer is similar to the one that Jesus gives in Luke 13. You remember the question Jesus asked about in Luke 13? About the worshipers who were killed and their blood was mingled and then the Tower of Siloam falls on them? I mean, there are worshipers killed while they're offering sacrifice to God. What, what, what greater injustice is there? They're serving God, they're doing what God would command them to do, and while they are being obedient to God uncircumcised Gentiles come in and kill them and mingle their blood, their own blood, with the very sacrifices that they're offering to God in in obedience to to His covenant. And someone asked Jesus about that and the calamity of the tower falling. And their point is, why did this happen? I mean, they're in church, for goodness sake. And they're killed there. And then they start to draw a faulty conclusion. And that's what Jesus addresses. They conclude it must have been, it must have happened because there was some hidden sin in their heart. They're like Job's friends. It must have happened because they were worse sinners than everybody else, meaning they deserved it. That's what happened. Isn't that what your, your school teacher or your, your mom or your dad used to tell you whenever, whenever you got a spanking? And, and then they found out later that it was actually your your sister that, that did it, and you got to blame, and you got the spanking. What do they say? Well, you, you got away with one earlier, and so you deserve that one, right? 
So they're concluding they must have got away with a lot of things, and now God's bringing it down on their head. Pilate killed them, and the, the tower fell on them. And do you remember what Jesus says to that? Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that the Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? Put his finger right on the issue. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. They, like us, wanted an explanation for the seeming injustice, and Jesus goes to the heart of the matter and deals with what we're tempted to think. He says, don't go too far down the road of injustice or you'll get distracted by what's coming for you. You're a sinner as well. You begin to look at the injustice and you begin to lift yourself up. And that doesn't mean that all the evil that's been perpetrated upon us is right. Solomon's just confronted us with with the fact that God will take care of that one day. His vengeance is much greater than anything anything that man can do. But what we learn from injustice is that sin is present in the world and we're reminded that we have the same disease and we'll face a judgment as well if we don't repent. So one of the reasons that God leaves injustice specifically in sin in general until the final judgment, one of the reasons He delays is it's a testimony of how wicked we are so we won't think better of ourselves. And the greatest injustice ever perpetrated is our rejection of God who allows us time to repent and doesn't bring the judgment down whenever He should have. That's the second reason. Why is it delayed? The second reason for the delay is to allow for repentance. Another reason God doesn't judge now is to allow men to repent here because they won't be able to whenever they're there. Whenever God will judge both the righteous and the wicked man, the opportunity for repentance is over. There will be no pleading on that day. Now think about it. If God didn't judge in the future, there wasn't a day appointed out there, and He brought justice immediately, no one would have a chance, would they? It doesn't matter what you did. Adam and Eve would have died on the spot. They would have never made it out of the garden. And you wouldn't have made it out of the womb. Psalm 58.3 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They speak lies going... Uh, uh, they go astray from birth. I can remember one of the first times that I got in trouble as a pastor. I, I quoted Martin Luther while congratulating a couple on the birth of their, of their child. And when Luther had his first baby with... with Katerina von Bora, he, he said, Why, Katie, we have begotten ourselves a heathen. That's what he said. And I said that in, in church. And the mother came to me afterwards and said, Don't you ever call my baby a heathen again. He's an angel. And I didn't correct her because she was postpartum. And because she didn't define what kind of angel that was. And so we could probably find some an agreement there. The Bible says we're born sinners, and we are by nature children of wrath. And you want justice now? You don't want justice now. You want mercy now. You want justice later. Because if God didn't delay His justice, we would die long before we could ever experience any injustice from others.
And that brings us to the, the third one. It's to show His mercy. It's the other side of the coin. It allows for repentance. And in allowing for that repentance, it shows His, his mercy. The Bible says that God is long-suffering and He's merciful. And that is most evident in His gracious delay of justice. Now, we don't like it. It causes us pains. But the benefit is much greater. Look at Exodus 34. This is what God declares about Himself. Then the Lord passed by in front of Him, that's Moses, and He proclaimed, the Lord proclaimed, the Lord The Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet, He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. God says, He will not leave the guilty unpunished. He is fixed today, appointed today, when God will judge both the righteous and the wicked. And so when you face injustice, you can hope there. But first, before the judgment comes mercy, and mercy is offered. And, and that long-suffering mercy is held out for a very long time. So long that it even causes unbelievers to scoff in the face of the very mercy that's held out to them. You know this passage well. Second Peter 3, verses 8 and 9. But do not let this one fact escape your notice. That's an answer to the scoffers who are saying, everything is continued the way that it has always been. God's not coming back. There is no judgment. And Peter says, don't let this one fact escape you. This sovereign God has a grip of time. And one day to Him is, is like a thousand years. And a thousand years like, like one day. He's not bound by time. God's not in any kind of hurry but He always does what He says He'll do. And so why does He delay? Verse 9, the Lord is not slow about His promise. He's not not going to fail to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness. But He's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God wants sinners to repent. That verse says He desires it. I'm here to plead with you, if you don't know Christ, on, on His behalf to repent while mercy is, is held out to you. What an amazing and merciful God. When we normally think of injustice, who do we think about? Me. We think of ourselves, we rarely think about God. We think of the person who sinned against me. And we don't consider that God is the one who is most offended. You've offended God more times than you could count already this morning on your way to church. He was sinned against before you were, greater than you were, and even by you as you disregarded Him with your self-focus. And yet God even offended, delays and delays, and gives ample time for people to see His mercy and repent. And he has to delay his justice to do that. Listen, if you've, if you've never turned to Christ, 
that mercy is on display right now. But one day that mercy will burn its last oils. And all that will be left is a memory. And then comes the judgment. But for believers, there's something even better. There's an eternal reward. There's a second tool God gives to reduce the frustration of living under the curse. It's hope in heaven's tabulation. Trust in the Lord's tribunal. Hope in heaven's tabulation. His sovereignty gives us rest. His judgment, that's where we put our, our trust. And then comes the, the hope in heaven. The tools that God gives us to live under the curse reduce its frustration. Look, if you would, at verse 19. It says, For the, the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. One dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity. All go to the same place, all came from the dust, all return to the dust. Now, you read that, and you, and you say, kind of seems odd, doesn't it? This is one of those head-scratching passages in Ecclesiastes. Man and beast are the same? But when you realize what Solomon is saying here, it's a treasure trove of, of, of wisdom. Now Solomon's already talked about death, but now he's going to give specific wisdom in how to handle it. I mean, this is, that's what this topic is, injustice and now, and now death. Both of those are very frustrating to us. He's already told us that death steals meaning. You work and you work and you work, and, and all that you work for is, is gone. It's the trump card for personal success. You, you, you hope in what you accumulate, you have to leave it behind. You, you hope to leave it to your kids and, and you don't know how it's going to be managed while you're gone. And, and now he's going to teach us as believers how we can reduce our frustration in dealing with that, with that reality. And Solomon again looks around and he sees that death makes no distinction between men and beasts. Or man and beast. And that's profoundly frustrating. You say it still seems kind of odd. It sounds, a, it sounds like that we're being compared to animals. I mean, doesn't the Bible say that we're made in the image of God? It does. Doesn't it say that we're a little lower than the angels? It does. And Solomon doesn't negate any of that here. Remember, Solomon is giving us a commentary on Genesis 3. What happens because of the, because of the fall? He's not revealing everything about man. He's revealing something specific about man to give us wisdom in a specific area related to the fall. And that something specific is, even though we bear the image of God, we die like the rest of creation because of the curse. The Bible makes this same analogy in several places. The man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beasts that, that perish and gives us the hope. Where do you hope? But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he will receive me. And Solomon is saying the same things here. The same thing here. Look at verse 19. The end of verse 19. As one dies, so dies the other. For what happens to the children of men also happens to the beast. It's the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Solomon is making a specific comparison. And you can see that right there in the verse. They both came from the dust. They're both going to return to the dust. Because of the fall, we end up the same place the beasts do, dead. 
He says, if there is a special place and a special plan for man, when I look around, it doesn't seem like it because they're going through the same place that Fido does. Philip Reichen said, Solomon is not commenting on our biology, but on, on our destiny. And I think the quote from Derek Kidner's even better. He said, verse 20, is showing us that while man is on his journey from dust to dust, he is confronted in that journey that we die like cattle because we fancied ourselves as gods. Look at verse 21, though. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of beast ascends downward into the earth? Solomon says we die the same as, a, as an animal. We go into the ground, but there's a difference. Man's spirit will live forever. And when Solomon comes face to face with that reality of death, there's nothing that robs his sense of satisfaction more than death. He then looks up again and finds the, the tool. And he says the tool that will negate that frustration is remembering that there's an eternity that's coming. You need to remember that you will live forever whenever you have the aches and pains of this life. You need to remember that you will live forever whenever you work and you work and you don't get what you hoped for. You need to remember that there is a judgment that's coming whenever you face injustice. But the answer to living wisely in the face of death is to is to hope in, in heaven and to hope in heaven's tabulation. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Colossians? Where are you to set your affections? Things above, not on the earth. Where are you supposed to lay up treasures? In heaven, not on the earth. Now, don't read verse 21 here like a question, like Solomon doesn't know the answer. I think that's what throws people off. It's not like saying Solomon's going, who knows? The breath of man ascends upward and the breath of beast ascends downward. I don't know. That's not what Solomon's saying here at all. You say, how do you know that? Because he's already given us the answer of what he believes and what he knows back in verse 17. Look at verse 17. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous and the wicked man. When's God going to do that? In eternity. I mean, what's the big deal if you go into the ground and God judges your corpse? Who cares? Solomon already has proven that he believes in life after death. And now he says that while that judgment is coming, you can't have a judgment if there's, there's nothing after death and you're just like an animal. Solomon asked the, the question here, but he already knows what he believes. He's already stated it. He's asking you, if you've thought about that answer, have you thought about the fact, about the, the answer of whether your spirit is going to ascend upward? The one who gave you that spirit, have you thought about the fact that the one who gave you that spirit while your body is going to go in the ground like, like an animal, have you thought about the fact that, that that one who gave you that spirit is going to call it to stand before him one day? Have you thought about that answer? 
Because that's the answer where you find wisdom to live knowing that death is coming. Isn't that how the majority of the way unbelievers go through life? I don't talk about death. We call it a, a memorial garden rather than a graveyard, right? I don't like to talk about death. I don't want to. I don't want to look at death. I don't want to hear death unless it's fake, unless it's in the movies, and then and all that does is just it, it's just reduce the 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 reality of of the fact that that it's actually it's actually coming. They want to be blind. And so you're wise if you're not blind about that, that coming. He's saying, who among you has thought about where man's spirit goes, which is different from where an animal goes? Because if you haven't thought about that, you're going to have a wrong view of death and you're going to have lots of futility. The spirit of man ascends upward. Solomon says, think this through. And that's going to help you. It's a tool to deal wisely with the brevity of life. And the fact that it that it ends. Life after death is full of judgment for those who don't know Christ. But it's full of reward for those who have followed Jesus. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Doesn't that remove some of the frustration of what you don't get here? (laughs) I deserve this and I don't get it here. God says you'll get exactly what you deserve whenever you're in heaven. And He rewards both of them there. It's the place the rewards happen. And while you might leave earthly things behind and what you do with those earthly things lays up treasures in heaven, you get the credit in eternity for the debits that you make here. And Solomon says that they will reduce your frustration. Think about it. Death comes, but there's more for a believer. For an unbeliever, it goes from bad to worse. You'll spend your whole life trying to get ahead and all you get is stress. Your mind will never, never lay down at night. And then you leave it all behind and what you get after death is even more empty. You get hell. But Solomon says, for a believer, work has purpose. We can leave behind resources to the gospel. We can train our families to do the same. And that's how we live, with eternity in view. You see that? If there's a judgment and there's a heaven, then there's not a single effort that you'll put forth or a penny that you give that God doesn't grant in return. His investment plan would be illegal here. We, we would think it's a scam. It's so good. And His plan is you invest earthly efforts in the dirt while you're wrestling around in the dirt and you get eternal reward and eternal treasure in the long run. And if you can remember that, then you will find a measure of joy in this world. Look at verse 22. Here's his conclusion. What's his conclusion of all this? He sees injustice in the halls of... wickedness in the halls of, of justice. He looks around, so he looks up. He reminds himself that God's, God will judge. He looks around at death and says men are going into the ground just like animals and then he reminds himself, wait, the, my spirit will go upward. And there is where there will be an accurate accounting. And then he draws this conclusion. I've seen that, that nothing is better than that a man should be happy in his activities. For that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur 
after him. This is a place where the better than is actually in the, the original. His idea is if you apply these tools, God's sovereignty, His coming judgment, and the reality of everlasting life, then it will give you the ability to enjoy life here. I have seen that nothing is better than that a man should be happy in his activities. How can you be happy with your activities when there's injustice and death is coming? Because God's sovereign and there's a coming judgment and there's the reality of eternal life. That's how. And that's your lot. You're stuck in the curse, but God's not left you there without, without joy. And without these three tools, it feels almost insufferable. If God's not in control, that means man or sin is, and that's a petrifying thought. If there's no coming judgment where God will make right the things that are wrong, then injustice is unbearable. And if this is all there is and we just go in the ground like an animal, then there's no meaning to life and that guts enjoyment. You can't even live, with, if that's true, you can't even live with a mantra, eat, drink, and be married before tomorrow you, you die because God's put eternity in your heart and you're reminded that you're going to die. You don't last forever. So you can't even enjoy that. It's temporary. It steals all your merriness. And then you die like an animal. And so Solomon asked the question, who will bring me to see what will occur after all of this? And his answer is only God and he can only do that through the Lord Jesus Christ. Solomon says God's got a better plan than living without Him. Repent while He holds out mercy and come to Christ. And then remember I'm sovereign. Remember to trust in my tribunal and remember to hope in everlasting life that's coming because that will bring meaning and joy. Why don't you bow your heads?